Hello, welcome to episode 26 of NG Meets. We're back with our second episode of 2020 and we've got another great guest for you lined up this week. Joining me at Cafe Sobar for the latest episode was storyteller and poet Panya Banjoko. Uh, I had a chance to sit down with Panya and have a chat about her career, uh, how she got started in poetry, the work she's doing, and we talked about activism, the way that's changed, that's something she's looking at at the moment, her work with the uh, Nottinghamshire Black Archive, and various other topics, including uh, Nottingham City of Literature, for which is a patron. We talked about sort of performance, nerves and anxiety, and the current political landscape and the importance of activism and, uh, you know, battling back about what's going on there. Uh, much, much more. Panya has got loads going on, including she's doing a PhD at the moment. So it was brilliant that she was able to take time to have a chat with us. And this is a really fascinating chat that I think you'll enjoy from an absolutely fantastic uh, storyteller, poet, writer. So uh, before we get into that, obviously, quickly, obviously, you can check out all NG Digital um, episodes at ngdigital.podbean.com. Sorry about that. Uh, as usual, and you can subscribe in all the usual places, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, places like that, wherever you get your podcasts from, please check it out. We've had some great episodes. Hopefully you heard last week's episode with uh, Sports Personality of the Year, Unsung Hero Award winner, Kieran Thompson. Uh, that was a brilliant episode, and obviously all the episodes last year. We've got some great episodes coming up. I'll talk a bit about them at the end of this episode. But for now, this is NG Meets, episode 26, with Panya Banjoko. This evening with uh, Panya Banjoko, who is a, a, a writer, performance poet, and storyteller. So, thank you very much for joining me this evening. No problem. Um, it's a bleak day. Mm. It's been a bleak day. I think they're, they're threatening a bit more of this storm, but um, it's nice that you're able to, to come over and see us for a chat. Mm. So, if you just want to sort of start things off and, and tell us a little bit about about yourself and what you do. Okay, uh, wow, where do I start? So that's always a difficult one, isn't it? Um, so um, I'm a, a Nottinghamian. This is the city where I was born. Um, and my parents are from the Caribbean, so I'm part of that Windrush generation, right. which I think kind of, um, you know, um, What's the word? It, 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 it impacts on who I am. Yes. Because of that historical context of uh, coming here at that point of in time in history and kind of the experiences uh, people like myself had as uh, first generations in this city. Um, so, yeah, I'm Black British. Um, I'm a writer and a, and a poet. I started writing. Uh, gosh, maybe 30 years ago, I started scribbling, didn't really call myself a writer then. And then just, you know, over time, you 
craft your art form you get a little bit better and there's still lots of room for improvement and um and then you forge a career out and then that's kind of like what i do i write poetry and i write poetry mainly to try and um to create some kind of political change i know that's a big ask of poetry yeah. but um i hope through my work and people listening to my work that um it has an impact on them in terms of being able to see what life is like for somebody else um and somebody who's classified as other in in society so um yeah i mean i do a lot of things i'm an archivist as well as a writer and i do the two things side by side so i'm the founder of nottingham black archive which has been going for 10 years and and documented a lot of black history in the city and at the moment i'm looking at uh, black activism during the 70s and 80s in nottingham and specifically the organizations that produced um political newsletters and within those newsletters um where there was poetry and looking at and analyzing that poetry so uh yeah that's kind of like i don't know if you want more oh no yeah that's, that's a that's a great starting point as you say there's a lot there and, and an interesting thing you talked about how you you like to use your writing and your poetry to try in, in your own way trying to enact, enact change and tell it and give a perspective and i think that's an interesting point because i think things like poetry and stories can get through in a way that a lot of other forms of media just don't mm-hmm. you know so you can you can present reports you can present articles and things like that but a story can get where it get through in a way that they never will no matter how many facts you put into them and how strongly you present it how well you present it this this because i guess it's the connection of a story mm. that pulls you in yeah absolutely yeah, there's um poems that i've performed that has literally made people cry and uh, and when i perform my work people do come up to me and say what an impact that that has had on them from two sides uh from 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 one side where people are saying you know i never thought about life like this and then the other side is people who said well i've had that experience too so it's nice to know that i'm not alone yes um with this so um yeah i th- i think it, it you know my poetry does reach people's hearts and what i wanted to do is not just reach the hearts but reach the the minds and the actions of individuals and for us to kind of you know work together better as people within the world i mean and especially in the political climate at the moment where you know things that are said by uh some politicians are really divisive I, th- i think it's really important that we remember humanity and 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 try and work together collectively for the for the better yes of of the world and that's really what i would like to say definitely and i think you right it's it's a very or it's almost it's quite a scary worrying time in the world of politics as you say um certainly i mean i don't recall in my lifetime a time I ever felt quite so divisive where it's been you know there's always been it been sides in terms of politics but i've never seen it where it's felt quite so much like you are one side or you are the other mm. and obviously you know the referendum and brexit it was the, the launch pad but that i think what that did though is brought out a lot of things that were already festering mm. away and we're seeing some 
pretty horrible stuff that I think a lot of us perhaps naively thought had gone away. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean it. Ne- it it never did go away. No. Um, like I said, I'm doing research on the seventies and the eighties, but in order to do the research on the seventies and the eighties, I have to look at the sixties and the fifties as well yeah. to see where things are coming from. And um, certainly in terms of Nottingham, my my research is specifically Nottingham based. Uh, the, the 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 issues that the the Windrush generation were facing then in the the mid fifties are still issues that are happening now still discrimination based upon race and discrimination in areas such as education and housing and employment and those things still exist I saw a, a recent piece of research uh, that showed that you know the exclusions of black children is still at an alarming rate. And in terms of employment, well, we know there's a gender pay gap, but there is also a race pay gap as well. So these things are still there and still need to be challenged and dismantled um, as soon as possible. Yeah, I think one of the issues there is it feels like, like you say, it's always been there. I think a lot, a lot of people became quite good at hiding it because, and it feels that almost that those people sort of feel. Um, like they've got a platform again but it also feels like it's being facilitated at the top in a way that it hasn't you know wasn't before mm. it's, it's being you know we're seeing we've got a prime minister that's you know you look at some of his comments and he won't even apologize for mm. them and say look you know they were bad taste they were bad comments i've learned from them. He, he laughs them off mm. and if, if the person who is the you know most powerful politician in the country and has just been elected by a large portion of the country is able to do that and the, and you know the, the lack of accountability for it it's giving then that's just sent going to you know trickle down isn't it and give people absolutely a platform and obviously social media plays into that because of the anonymity that that offers yeah absolutely so i guess as you say it's it, it while it didn't go away i think that there was almost a a feel of confidence in those people mm. that they don't have to keep that behind closed doors anymore in maybe a way they sort of did. Mm. Yeah, it's... absolutely. And our current Prime Minister has not only discriminated against people on the basis of race, but religion and sexuality. Yeah. So anything that is not um, what's perceived as the, the domin- dominant patriarchal norm is classed as other and it's fair game for him to, to criticise and condemn which is not acceptable. It's really not acceptable in, in in this day and age. We shouldn't be experiencing this and we shouldn't be having somebody uh, who's the leader of our country, um, you know, saying all these kind of uh, hateful remarks about people. No, and it's it's great. It seems to be an issue um, sort of growing across the globe as well because there seems to be a rise in this sort of, mm. these kind of groups. I mean, obviously, you know, across the... Upon you've got, you know, an arguably even worse person in control. <laughs> and and the scary thing is, is if these two leaders get together, yeah, and what can happen? That's the scary thing, um, you know, because they're both as bad as each other, in my opinion. And so, um, so yeah, yeah. So we we need to be working on the grassroots level to try and dismantle wherever. And I'm really pleased with um, some of the, you know, the activism that I see happening and people speaking up 
um, against discrimination on all, all levels. So, yeah, you know, there is some good yeah. amongst the mad. There's it's some, some good. Yeah, it is, it's just... It's getting that good out there, isn't it, as well? It because is. obviously you don't when you're on the grassroots you don't have the same kind of platform. Um, or you've got and you've got to work a lot harder to get anywhere near that parity. Yes, absolutely. We don't have the power that they do. Exactly. And the reach and they control the media, etc. etc. And they, you know, they can do cover ups and so on and so on and we can't do that. But what is good and what we need to continue to do is we need to continue to challenge it. We mustn't become, uh, you know, uh, complacent and think, well, because, um, I mean, you know, after the recent elections, I think there is a tendency for people. I know I, I myself at one point felt like, well, there's no point. Yes, to, to you know, they, they, won, they won big. There's no, effectively no yeah. challenge to them now yeah. within Parliament. I guess that makes it even more important that the people out on the streets challenge more absolutely we have to still keep being that voice because perhaps this voice that we have where we're we're fighting against is maybe this voice is it's stopping it from being really bad yes yeah uh, so we have to continue making a noise and and just you know being determined that's it the only thing that stops these people really is if they feel that their grip of power is at risk mm. and so that's what you've got to make sure that do everything we can to show that, you know, if they keep going down this route, then they will be out, mm. you know. Mm. That, that's all you can. Mm. <laughs> At this moment, as you say, it's very, it's difficult to, to sometimes to get, to not feel, you know, bleak about it and mm. everything that's happened after that election. And as you say, I know, I, you know, in the days after, it was very... Yeah. Downbeat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I felt like that as well. I couldn't believe it. I think I was in a daze for a couple of days yeah. thinking, I can't believe we lost that. Because you see, within my circles, you know, or even on my social media, I've, I have like-minded people. So that, you can, yeah. you know, so you think like, oh, it's going to be okay because everybody, um, you know, in my stream yeah. is saying positive things. Yeah, it's that bubble, isn't it? It is. And I think, I don't know, I guess because... The previous, in 2017, it went better than people expected. Mm. So that's, that's, it felt similar, like you say, within your own circle. So you kind of thought you were going to get a similar yes. similar thing and it couldn't have been more wrong. I guess. <laughs> yeah. You talk about the work you're doing at the moment mm. for your research in the uh, you know, 70s and 80s mm. activism. Mm. So, and you, but you're also involved in... In things today mm. so how do they sort of obviously it's very different times but you know activism is about getting out on the street so how do they, what are the sort of similarities and differences i guess in in the way groups are coming together in, in modern day as opposed to sort of 30 years ago okay so my research is part of uh my phd i'm doing okay. a phd at nottingham trent university and i'm in my second year and I'm looking specifically at the role black organisations within Nottingham um, and, and their poli political activism. And uh, I've gone back to the mid-1950s. So this is when we had the, the first influx en masse, because we have a black presence in Nottingham from about 1645. Yeah. 
Um, but what we're talking about here is where you have a, a very large group of yeah. um, black people coming in as part of the Windrush period, which was between 1948 and 1971. So these people who came uh, just after 48, the majority of the first people who came were uh, World War II ex-servicemen yeah. to the city. And I guess they knew how to mobilize because of their army training and they knew how to strategize and to 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 form you know themselves collectively for for action um, but what they didn't know was what the climate in england was going to be like because by virtue of being in the caribbean and that whole colonial history they had always thought of england as the mother country and um and felt that England was going to embrace them. And then when they came here, they realized that actually was the, the, the very opposite to that. And they experienced what was called then as a color bar. Um, so the very early organizations that we saw coming out of Nottingham were more kind of social orientated organizations. The very first organization was one, um, it was the, the, the colonial, social and sports club and that was based in St Anne's. So the the host community were really saying the problem that black people experience here in Nottingham isn't to do with race. This is this was the propaganda that was being um, reported at the time. It wasn't about race, it was about an inability to, to integrate. So the first organisations you've seen happening were like um, a, a cricket club and a social club and things like that. But actually what they then found, what the black people then found was actually, well, that isn't the problem. It's not, yeah. it's, it's not about us integrating in. Uh, it's about us being able to be to get a job and not be discriminated against or to get housing and not to be discriminated against or for their children to be educated and not be put into special educational needs classes. So there was, um, uh, as you started to move into the 60s, organizations then stopped being so focused on social uh, needs and then began to take on much more of a political aspect to them. So you see in the 60s things like the anti-color bar campa campaign or the campaign to abolish special officers. You had another organization called SPADE, which was um, Solidarity for the Prevention Against Discrimination in Education. So the organizations that started to, to, to grow up come out there then were more around tackling some of the issues that those pioneers were experiencing um, and that continued throughout the 60s and throughout the 70s by the time you get to the 80s organizations still kind of had um, a, a, a political influence but they were more looking now at um, if we can so this is the organizations thinking if we can um, embed within the black community a sense of cultural identity it will then equip them better to deal with the the racism that they're experiencing so you see then organizations that are around cultural needs like the um the acff center which was the um the african caribbean friends and families center which was a cultural study center so it was around um, you know, looking at art, looking at uh, black history and things like that to kind of uh, instill a sense of positive uh, identity in, in uh, 
black people. I guess we're moving now into uh, the noughties, into the twenties, the kind of organisations that we see are, are dealing um, with some of the, again, some of the social issues but that have changed. So you see organisations um, developing around trying to counteract knife crime. So it's different types yeah. of things, um, organisations that um, try to deal with political uh, particular health issues specific to the black community so there is a difference um, and then organizations like Nottingham Black Archive which I guess is a development from the cultural uh, study centers to actually okay if we're saying that a strong sense of identity um, is what's needed then here is an archive that will document and preserve black history and heritage yeah. and culture for for all and it's available for all the community to come and see um you know what the black community has been doing for however far back as we can go which is uh the 40s right up to the present day so um so there has been a um a slight difference um i mean in the earlier days you know in the 60s we saw the supplement, supplementary schools beginning to emerge, at least in terms of people beginning to discuss, discuss there is a need for black children to get uh, supplementary education outside of mainstream because that wasn't providing enough. And then we see now that we have a whole range of different supplementary uh, schools for and after school clubs for black children being led by the black community. Yeah. So, you know, some changes and, and, and some things are still very similar. Yeah. It's mm. interesting. Like you say, it's, mm. it's interesting to see the way it develops, but mm. sort of the core, sort of, you know, it's, it's well, I guess it's because the core is that same fight against mm. in, in injustices and inequalities. Mm. And obviously, you've got the, the technological aspect of it now, which means that in in the positive ways, it's far easier to... You know to connect and to speak and to spread the the message wide but also on the downside arguably a lot of people now don't go beyond the the online presence mm. so it can be more difficult to get people to actually be there in person so it's yeah it's, it's as, as with anything with social media it's it can be a brilliant positive use for what you're doing but it's got also got really really negative sides to it. it it has and i'm not sure i don't know i haven't looked into any research about um social media and and, and social movements and in, in terms of their impact but if you look at the kind of difference so in the 60s you um if you had a problem so for example there was a particular pub in nottingham that was operating a policy where it had um a, a, a room where whites could drink and a room where blacks could mm. drink and only a certain number of blacks could be drinking at one particular time. Um, now what the community did in this in the 60s was they got together yeah. in real time, you know, in reality, not over some super highway or anything. And what they did was they um, they got together. So this wasn't just black people. This was the black and the white community working together here and they all converged on this pub and they went in and they all bought uh you know half pint 
and they all sat nursing that half pint all night mm. so it had an impact yeah. on the pub's takings um and um, and they did that and then eventually as a result of that um and continuing to highlight the, the racism that was happening there the pub closed down and you know brilliant physical activism there now i'm not quite sure whether social social media would have that kind of impact because what you you know you've got your keyboard warriors they sit behind this they're you know they're tapping away on their keyboards they do their likes and they think it's done um but back then in the 60s people physically got involved and um and that was uh, you know uh, more effective from what i'm seeing through my research that was far more effective yeah. in you know they were able to um stop a number of different things happening actually uh now that i'm looking into it and yeah i'm not quite so sure about social media yeah and of course you know one of the best ways to make an impact is is when you start hitting somebody's bottom line effectively absolutely you know we've seen this across various different things yeah you know we see with with major companies you know, they, they, they do a lot don't they about talking about their credentials on this and that but most of the time that's only come in because it's they've got to a point where they realize that's best for business mm. effectively yeah it's you know most most of the time it's it's very little to do with their morals and and ethics mm. um, so moving sort of back on to the to the poetry mm. work you do mm. and uh, you say you were you, you sort of started sort of uh, scribbling i think you yeah <laughs> quite early on yeah was it always poetry or was it and when was it you sort of got the, the sort of passion for poetry? Was that always there or is that something that came? Um, I guess I, it wasn't always poetry. So to answer that first, I, I have a, a, a very vivid memory of the very first thing I wrote as a child. I might have been, I don't know, eight, nine. The very first thing I wrote was a play script, not even poetry. Excellent. Um, so that was the very first thing I wrote, and then I got my younger siblings to perform it. <laughs> uh, they didn't do very well. They didn't do justice to my words. <laughs> um, then after that, because and uh, you know, and and I guess that's why I started with I'm you know, although I am British, my family's heritage is in the Caribbean. So I was immersed in that tradition of oral storytelling yeah and, you know listening to great grand uncles talking about stories and you know talking about um, things that happened so after um my initial dabble in into playwriting um i was a storyteller and i was a storyteller working in schools for um many years before i then began to then develop into poetry so um, because the storytelling for me came very naturally because yeah. i guess if you've been listening to people telling stories and really embellishing um you know uh, it, it it has an, it, an an impact on you so storytelling was the, the the next thing that i did and then um probably the late 80s i started to really kind of focus more on poetry um, but I think that storytelling influence is still there because yeah. I think my poems are, some of my poems are very much like little compact stories yeah. um, you know a bit like those uh, Nancy tales and so on so you can see that Caribbean influence in my work and 
Excellent. And can you still, do you sort of remember, still remember the first time you kind of performed to a crowd, so to speak? Because that's obviously, that's it, isn't it? You write them and then one day you've got to take them and you've got to perform them. And mm. you, ne you never, you don't, you don't know until that point how they, they're going to react to them. Yeah, I mean, my very first performances, one of my very first performances was at a centre that no longer exists. It was the ACFF centre on Beaconsfield Street in Heisen Green. And um, I have to tell you, I was a wreck. Yeah. I was an absolute nervous wreck. My hands were shaking, my voice was quivering, and I was sweating buckets the very first time. Uh, and and few times, quite a bit, you know, quite a while after that, um, every time I had to perform, I was really, really nervous. Um, now, not so much. There's always that adrenaline that's there. But I do like getting up and standing up and performing in front of an audience now. Whereas there was a period in my life where I wanted to share my words, but I absolutely hated the thought of standing there with all our yeah. family. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And um, yeah, somehow I got over that. And I got over it by, I guess, beginning to memorise my pieces. So part of memorising my work wasn't about... I want to perform it really well. It was about if I memorise it, I'm not holding a sheet of paper, then you won't see my hand shaking. Yeah. Um, so then all I have to think about is just controlling my voice. And so then I started to memorise it. But then also when when I started to memorise it, memorise my work, my confidence began yeah. to grow. And um, and then I now I enjoy it. Excellent. And, that, <laughs> and there you go. So it just shows you, you don't, you know... You can go and have some flows, and mm. you know, as you say, it was, it was just about building that's those steps, mm. and, and you say, you know, just taking away one of those things that terrified you, mm. which was the shaking hands, mm. and then and over and over, and that was like the first step. Mm. Excellent, yeah. and obviously, um, Nottingham, Nottingham over recent years, especially, has had a, a real sort of. A boost literacy wise mm. in terms of um you know being named a unesco city of literature which i believe you're a patron of, mm. of that and we've had you know the, the launch of the poetry festivals and things so um how, how have you seen the sort of nottingham's obviously the, you know we've got quite a strong literary history anyway but it does feel that on a on a sort of a level street level it's really exploded over the last i don't know five six years mm. or so and i mean i guess that's been a, you've obviously been part of that and i know you've been involved in various poetry groups and things mm. so i guess that's been very quite an exciting to be a part of mm. absolutely it's really nice to see the us being a city of literature and the work that the city of literature is doing for young people uh so through the city of literature we had our very first young poet laureate yes. uh, at the moment we are working with 14 young people as young ambassadors and i'm mentoring three of those and then there is another new scheme that has just started through the city of literature which is called my voice young voices and we're working with a number of different schools uh, and youth groups throughout the city and i'm uh, working with one school in the city as part of that and working with eight uh, primary school children so it's really nice to see us investing in the young and we really great seeing that people are now looking at the creative industry as uh, something tangible and that you can make a career out yeah. of it 
because I remember when I first, um, you know, I, when I completed my undergraduate degree, and um, I think I'm, and I said to my mum, um, I'm going to, because I was doing, a, you know, a proper job, as I say, and I said to my mum, I'm going to leave the job and I'm going to go freelance. And all hell broke loose <laughs> because there was this thing that you can't make a living from the arts. Yes. You know, not just poetry, but I guess visual artists also experience this too. And so it's really nice that people are now saying, well, actually, you can make a living from the arts. You know, you, you, you actually positively can. So, um, yeah, it is nice to see that happening in the city. They have a whole range of open mic events, lots of different poetry events. I um, do a, a read a black author event myself and, and people can come along to that and read black authors. And I'm organising um, some more poetry events for, for this year as well. Excellent. And I think it's interesting the bit you, thing you mentioned there about careers. Mm. Because that's something I don't like. I don't think is is pushed in schools very mm. well. And also, it's when when things are being axed, um, the arts, music, and things like that are usually first to to take the cuts. As we've seen, yeah, you know, music lessons and arts lessons have been um, brutalised over recent years. And yet, there's the studies that show that I think it's something like. It, as an industry, the creative arts is something like nine pound for every pound invested it brings mm. back, mm. and not only that, but also the studies show the importance of it for our, our mental health, of of museums and I mean libraries, which obviously I think Nottingham has bucked the trend somewhat in this. In that we seen our libraries seem to, for the most part be doing okay so quite a few of them have had some nice refurbishments but in other parts of the country there's areas where there's there's no library for children or you know grown-ups to go to mm. uh, particularly in areas where incomes are lower where they don't you know they can't just jump you know necessarily afford to jump on a bus if there's still a bus in those areas so mm. i think it's it's these event things like the city literature like say i mean they did a thing last year, didn't they, where they put books across mm. the city on trams in, yes. in and that, I think that was brilliant. And um and just the festivals mm. that they do and as you say the young events. Um you mentioned um, Georgina, mm. obviously was the, the youth poet laureate, which mm. I think is good because um we've had a couple we've had Georgina on and a couple of, of other poets and it's it's interesting to talk to them because I was I've always said that the poetry I was taught in school was so uninspiring mm. and 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 most of the people have said the same have agreed that so many people come out with this idea that poetry is a a snob snobby snobbish thing that's not for the likes of us mm. and that's such a shame because as as nottingham has shown with a festival you know we have things like poetry slams mm. and open mics and also and just some incredible poetry that people are missing out on people that might actually be really good if they give it a go. Yes. Are being swayed away from it because it's it's just not being taught in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Well I must say that my interest in poetry never came from school. No, I've not I don't think I've <laughs> spoken to any poet that's dead. <laughs> so. Yeah, it never came from school. Uh, it came from seeing real life poets and the the first poet to influence me was a poet called Jean Binterbreeze. And she did, um, at the time, dub poetry. And that was what sort of piqued my interest. But, um, I mean, now I look at the poetry that, that they, you know, they 
study at school and yes I'm interested in it now because I'm an adult and I can yeah. see the value of that but I do think they need to think about the kind of poetry they have on the curriculum and how you know young people might relate to or not that kind of, of poetry there is a place for it absolutely but maybe that's it's not the starting yes place. I, I mean you know it's not it's not the introduction to poetry no. that they need it. and it's also I don't think it's varied enough mm. in that it because it tends to obviously focus on I guess what you would call the classics mm. and I th- you know I, I come very very little memory of the poetry I did I remember sort of doing things like poetry from the the you know the war times mm. and things like that yes. and the classics and obviously like you say they you know they're classics because they stand the test of time yes but they're not necessarily engaging to a, a 12 13 year old no. and they are of a very narrow you know mm. there's the you know there's poet there's poems that are emotionally heart-wrenching there's poets that are, poems that are just fun there's poems that are laugh out loud silly mm. you know and there's mm. such a broad spectrum of poetry that mm. i think in in just it's it's just like stories mm. you know there it, it's kind of like it's kind of like only which which we do I suppose they do a bit to a degree in schools as well, in a narrow form when there are hundreds of genres of mm. of stories. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, and I, for me, it kind of I spent a long, long time dismissing poetry. I would say because I got, and it was only really through um, the city of literature. And getting to know people through that and discovering poetry through that, that I realised what a varied world of poetry mm, is. Absolutely. And, you know, how exciting it can be. That's another thing I think performance poetry is not um, portrayed enough in schools either, mm. which obviously adds an all new one. You know, some of the some of the things, some of the groups like, uh, you know, Marty Poets, DIY Poets, I know some of the groups aren't around anymore. But some of them, some of the things, the events they were doing at places like the Playhouse and that. Mm. So um, it's, it's exciting seeing that kind of stuff going on. Yes, it is. And uh, hopefully, you know, Nottingham can keep flying the flag for it. Yeah, and I, th- I think we will. I mean, the City of Liter- Literature uh, status is a permanent status, yep. unless we really mess up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I think there will always, hopefully, be this drive, um, you know, to just be a, a really literature rich city which is great you know you know books fabulous i read all the time and uh, and books have helped me through some really uh difficult times yeah. as well so um yeah books fabulous escape yeah i think personally i don't i think they are for me the ultimate escape in a way that, and I know for some people, people a lot of people have the same feeling about music. Mm. But um, for me, it's there's something about a book that no other, you know, TV, anything like that doesn't do quite the same because I guess because you're fully immersed in it. Mm. And it's I've said before one of the reasons I still stick to to actual books, paperback books, because if I try and use anything else, and I've you know I've got kindle apps mm. and things like that i get distracted by the other stuff on the device mm. so if mm. i'm using a, a mobile phone for example i'll be getting things pop up messages and things mm. if i've got a book i've put my phone off mm. away and you know sort of that there are times when you just need that don't you yeah and, and, absolutely um yeah 
And I and think there's something nice about uh, curling up in bed with a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I read before I go to sleep at night and depending on what I'm reading, I can enter that world in my sleep. <laughs> yeah. The problem there that I find with that, though, is if it's a really good book, then... I might not go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you look, you look, Nick, just one more chapter. Oh, oh it's two o'clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the most recent thing that did that to me was Kai Miller's August Town, I think it's called. And uh, and I got, I think it was like, I was halfway through it and then it was just so gripping. I remember staying up all night just to finish reading yeah. that book and then being really unproductive the next day. But the pleasure of, I know what happens at the end of this, it was just fabulous. Do you just... ever get that thing though, I get sometimes that you, you do that and you read it, read it, and you go, I want to get to the end, I want to finish this book. And then I finish it and then I think, oh no, I've finished it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. it's almost like that buyer's remorse type thing, isn't it? It's yeah. like, oh, that's it. Yeah. You know, I was really wanted to know how it ended. Now I know, and it, even if it was a great end, it's like, Oh, that's that's the end of that story. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, um, we'll have to wrap up fairly soon. Mm. So, um, what kind of are you working on? Any anything at the moment? Obviously, I know you mentioned you, you're involved in mentoring. Yes. With the city literature. Yeah, I'm working on a number of different projects at the moment. So I'm working on a project for City Arts, which is called. Um, it's uh, I don't want to say the name wrong because I, I I might say it wrong. Uh, so, but it's basically a, a project for older people. So I'm working with three groups in the city and um, and then what we produce as a result of that will be shown as part of the Nottingham Poetry Festival okay. this year. So that's one with City of, city of Literature. I'm working, I mean, City Arts. Then I'm working with the City of Literature too on uh, the new My Voices project, which is working with young people. Um, and what else am I working on? Uh, but I'm also working on a new collection of poetry as well yeah. that's being inspired by the archive. So that is something that I'm doing alongside that. Um, and what am I, am I doing? I'm also working on um, a, a project looking at the history of Black employment at Rally. And as part of that, again, I'm working on a book. Uh, for that, so I'm working on a number. That's just a few. I'm working on a number of different projects at the moment. And doing a PhD. And doing a PhD. It's <laughs> yeah, kind of no wonder crazy. you said it was been busy. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So I get you. Are obviously, one of those people that you know needs to keep their mind busy and going. Mm. I guess, which I think is quite common within the creative. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's all about uh, time management. Yeah. But also one of the skills as well is to see how you can incorporate all the different things you're doing. So the project that I'm working on with the, the three um, older groups, adult groups, um, I'm looking at the theme of that poetry is going to be activism, which feeds into the yes. PhD. So yep. it's about how you, you know, you do yeah, things. Yeah, take, so. take advantage of, of the possibilities where you can. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. So although I'll be working with them and we'll be creating poetry, I'll also be able to get information from them because they are uh, elders who were around during the 60s and the 70s about that time and yeah. that climate. It also enables me to kind of... Um, explain my research in a in a in a down-to-earth manner to them as well and sort of work on that more so the, you know there's there's always crossovers 
it's always crossovers yeah and I think out of all everything there the most difficult thing for me is writing a collection of poetry that's the most difficult yeah. thing really facilitating a session that's yeah pretty easy <laughs> um, yeah not because it's I don't uh, you know but, but because I've been doing it for a long time yeah so I know how to facilitate a and session you know you know how to manage people yeah and, absolutely and make it enjoyable and yeah things like that. excellent mm. well there's, there's a lot for us to to yeah. keep our eye out I'm sure we will mm. it's been very nice talking to you and yeah. finding out more um quickly before we go obviously um Obviously, you mentioned quite a bit about your involvement with the, the Nottingham uh, Black Archive. Mm. So for anyone that you know, wants to find out more about that, that maybe isn't aware of it, what, where's the best place to find out more about that? Okay, so check us out online, uh, www.nottinghamblackarchive.org. And um, we're on all the social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. At the moment, we have an exhibition on at the Bonington Gallery, yeah. which is on until the 1st of February. Um, and then we're going to be doing loads of stuff in June for Windrush Day. So, um, yeah, just check us out online, really. And we'll see what we do. Excellent. And obviously, Windrush obviously was um, a prominent um, mm. and within you know in the media last year i mean i was probably a lot a lot of people that had no not no no knew nothing about it until mm. till last year so i think that's that's going to be fascinating i think for people that only know it from obviously the the terrible mm. news that was coming out about it last year it will be very educational yes and, and interesting i think to people yeah yeah um, particularly to find out it's it's how it relates to Nottingham, its involvement in Nottingham. Yes, absolutely, because the Windrush community in Nottingham has done a lot in terms of, um, you know, employment and working in industry and building the economy and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, so the work that we do through Nottingham Black Archive is about highlighting yeah. that and highlighting the contributions that the black community has made to the city of Nottingham. Yeah. Excellent. All right, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thank you. So there you go, that was NG Meets episode 26 with a fantastic guest in Panya Banjoko. I really enjoyed speaking to Panya and I'm so inspired by the amount of ways she just manages to do so much stuff. And uh, please do check out she's got, you know, the work she's done. If you go over to uh, panyabanjoko.com, you can find out a lot more about what she does. Some great pieces of work out there, well worth checking out. You can check out some of her videos of her performances on there. And there's more information on the books she's done, anthologies and things like that. Well worth checking out. And uh, as ever, thanks to Cafe Sobar for providing us the facilities to record. As always, well worth checking out. They've just celebrated their sixth birthday. And they were Nottingham's first, you know, alcohol-free bar. Support and ran by Double Impact, a substance recovery charity. They do brilliant things. Um, as well and they have some fantastic cakes and things on there so do check them out there on Friar Lane thanks again for listening we've got some great episodes coming up 
next year, next week, sorry, is uh, is an episode with uh, Tiffany and Theo from a organisation called Rene House. Uh, and they provide sheltered accommodation for uh, single males who are homeless or vulnerable to homelessness. Uh, I went along to them, their officers in Sherwood Rise, to have a chat with them. And that was a hugely inspiring chat. And I'm looking forward to getting that one out next week. Uh, we've got another episode coming up in a couple of weeks that uh, I'll have more information on soon. We're just getting that one sorted out. We also had a chat uh with uh, Purple Mamba, which is a uh, swingers club down in West Bridgeford. That one's coming up. That's quite an interesting chat for you to check out. We've got loads more uh, in the pipeline. We'll keep the announcements coming, but the best way to find out is to subscribe to the to the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and hopefully you'll be back next week when we're with uh, Tiffany and Theo from Rene House. Don't forget you can check out all episodes at ngdigital.podbean.com. Subscribe, like, review, let us know what you think. Uh, check us out on Facebook, NG Digital. Check us out on Twitter, at NG Digital UK. And, you know, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast from, you can find NG Meets Podcast. Thanks again. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.